This episode of The Law is sponsored by John Jersman. Thank you, John. You are the man. And John would like to thank all his fellow citizens that work to promote and preserve life, liberty, and property. And again, thank you, John, for sponsoring this week's episode and for all you do. If you'd like to support future podcasts of The Law, please contact my colleague, Bethany, by email at bethany at speakeasyideas.com. Now, hit the music. Welcome to The Law with D.K. Williams, giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to The Law. I am D.K. Williams, and this is episode 78, Republican National Committee versus the Democratic National Committee. This case was decided just earlier this month, a couple weeks ago. Opinion was released April 6th of 2020 concerning the Wisconsin state election. You probably heard something about it in the news because it was uh, controversial. So this week's case on the law is fresh and timely. Also fresh and timely is Trump's suggestion that's been in the news the last couple of days to, as CNN put it, to invoke never used constitutional authority to adjourn Congress and push nominees through. So that's how they describe it. And it's basically what Trump has uh, suggested he might do. So before we get into RNC versus DNC in depth, let's look quickly at this alleged authority that Trump says he might use, which has, in fact, never been used in the history of the United States. Article 2 of the Constitution lays out the executive power. Section 3 of Article 2 says, in pertinent part, that he, the president, may on extraordinary occasions, convene both houses or either of them, and in case of disagreement between them, with respect to the time of adjournment, this part of it is what Trump is really looking at, he may adjourn them to such time as he shall think proper. All right. Now, if he were to do this, if he were to adjourn Congress, as right here it says he can do under extraordinary occasions, and in the case of a disagreement between them, with respect to the time of adjournment, he may adjourn them to such time as, as he shall think proper. Now, if he were to do this, because what is happening is, is that for whatever political reasons, a lot of his appointments to the executive branch are not going through. So if he adjourns Congress, he can get these people into their positions by recess appointments. We'll just leave it at that. Now, if you were to do this, of course, he'd be sued immediately by Democrats. And what issues would be argued? Now, the ones I see immediately are what comprises an extraordinary occasion, because that's what it, the Constitution says there has to be an extraordinary occasion. Who gets to decide that? Also, what is a case of disagreement between the houses, the House and Senate, with respect for time of adjournment? Are we dealing with that? Do they have a disagreement? Are they both agreeing we're just going to stay open and do these little technical moves so we never adjourn? If they're in agreement on that, there's not a case of disagreement, right? That would be litigated. And what limit, if any, does he shall think proper impose? Well, to me, once you get there, once these other two things have been decided, is it an extraordinary occasion? Is there a case of disagreement as described there? Once it's there, he shall think proper is an absolute grant of discretion. There's no other way to look at that. So to me, it looks like the arguments would be about extraordinary occasion and a disagreement between the houses. So that might happen. Trump might do that in an effort to, to get his appointments confirmed so these people can start working. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. You can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through your favorite podcast app. And if you don't see it, 
Let us know on your app and we'll do what we can to make sure you can get it via that app. We did that with Stitcher recently. So if you're looking for it, look for Speakeasy Ideas on your app, Stitcher or whatever it is. And that should come up. You'll see the law there and also some podcasts from Tom Krenowitter. We're both posting as part of Speakeasy Ideas on these podcasts. If you never want to miss one, you can also follow this podcast on social media, Twitter at The Law, DKW, and on Facebook.com slash The Law with DK Williams. When new podcasts go up, You'll find out about there immediately or quickly. And if other legal things happen during the week, I will post about them in both of those places. Love to hear from you. If you're so inclined, you know the whole spiel. Like, review, comment, subscribe, share. You know how it works. Let us get the word out there. Spread the gospel of the law. And I'd like to come and speak with you your group, your class, whatever it might be, any any of your cool projects, contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for that as well. So who do we have this week? The RNC and the DNC, the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee. There are others, other parties, but they were the first named on each side, so that's the ones we're going to go with. This was a 5-4 per curiam decision against changing the Wisconsin election rules, the statutory laws, basically the deadlines, at the last minute. Now, the dissent would disagree with that characterization, and we'll talk about it here. But remember, I always provide a link to the case itself so you can read the case and not have to rely on my interpretation or anyone else's interpretation. In this case, a federal district court, so like a trial-level court, allowed for mail-in ballots for the Wisconsin election that was set for April 7th. That was the election day. The district court allowed those ballots to be mailed in after election day of April 7th because of COVID-19. That was the argument and how the government responded by shutting lots of things down and telling people to stay at home. And per curiam means that no one justice name is assigned to the opinion as its author. According to Cornell Law School, a per curiam decision is a court opinion issued in the name of the court rather than specific judges. Per curiam decisions are not always unanimous and non-controversial. This case is the latter. It's not unanimous, and it's definitely controversial. We don't know who wrote the majority opinion or who signed on to it by name. They're not listed. But there was a four-person dissent, and they are listed, so we can do the math and figure out the other five. This is one of those cases where the Supreme Court split down by, quote-unquote, ideology. And as we've discussed, it doesn't happen that often, but when it does, it's usually something controversial that gets a lot of news and a lot of play. We'll start with the dissent because that's the part where we get the names actually written on the opinion. It was written by RBG, who was nominated by Democratic President Clinton, joined by Stephen Breyer, also Clinton, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan, both nominated by Obama. So those four dissenters nominated by Democratic presidents. As a quick aside, Sonia Sotomayor replaced David Souter. And David Tudor retired in 09, so like 11 years ago, but he's still around. He's still alive. If you look back at when Souter was appointed by H.W. Bush, if he'd have picked somebody better, perhaps, that seat would still be held by a Republican justice. But because H.W. Bush nominated Souter and he retired in 09, that seat was left open and Obama appointed a replacement. So in retrospect, that was not a good appointment if Bush's H.W. Bush's goal was to have that seat held by a Republican for a long time, which I think is generally the goal when any president makes an appointment. They want that seat to be filled by someone from his political party for as long as possible. 
So those were the four dissenters. That leaves five justices in the per curiam majority opinion. Even though their names aren't listed, we can do the math. Chief Justice John Roberts, who was appointed by W. Bush, H.W.'s son, right? Republican President Clarence Thomas, who was nominated by H.W. Bush. So again, if H.W. Bush had nominated somebody more akin to Clarence Thomas than a David Souter, the Supreme Court would be entirely different. He did not. Also in the majority on the current case was Samuel Alito, also appointed by W. And Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, of course, recently nominated by Trump. So you got the five Republican nominees and the four Democratic nominees is the split. That rarely happens, of course. When it does, it gets press and we hear about it. And before we get into the actual opinion, let me share one commentator's thought about it. And I, I linked to his entire post in the note so you can read it yourself, not rely on my opinion or just a part of the blog post I reference here. And I found this through the Scottish blog. Scottish, you know, the, the abbreviation for Supreme Court of the United States, scottishblog.com. I check it out just about every day, at least once. And that's where I found a link to this particular commentator, Michael Dorff. He maintains that although, quote, one would need to be especially naive to think that partisanship played no role in this decision, the majority also, quote, appealed to a principle that conservatives on the court hold dear in other circumstances as well. Lamentably, According to Dorf, however, that principle is a kind of fetishistic attachment to rules. Now, let that sink in. A fetishistic attachment to rules? That's what judges do, right? They apply rules. So, breaking them because a justice or judge doesn't like the result is not judging. That is policy making. And yeah, that's exactly what a lot of progressives want the Supreme Court to do. And I always put air quotes around progressives and conservatives because it means different things to different people. But that's what a lot of statists on the progressive, quote-unquote, side of things want the Supreme Court to do, to make policy when they fail to get their desired result through the actual political process of voting for legislators and governors or mayors or presidents or whomever. That has been a very successful strategy. They've done a lot to advance whatever cause they happen to be behind at the time. And we've talked about a lot of those throughout the course of these podcasts. But that is not how the judiciary and separation of powers was designed. Not the idea, but that's how it's been used. And one other point about Michael Dorff's comment, and the article is good. I mean, I disagree with a lot of it, but it makes some good arguments, even if I don't end up agreeing with them. He talks about this being partisan. Well, a consistent judicial philosophy does not make one partisan. If philosophy results in one being labeled a partisan, okay, that's one thing. But when partisanship, like all you care about is your party, if that results in your philosophy— more accurately, substitutes for your philosophy, because all you care about is your party winning, then you're a hack. And I don't believe the Supreme Court currently has any hacks. None of them. I think they have philosophies that differ, but that doesn't mean they're partisan. And Dorf begrudgingly acknowledges this at the end of his post. He says, perhaps the Republican appointees on the Supreme Court were driven by long-standing principle rather than by pure partisan politics. Well, yeah, they were. And Dorf also acknowledges that if the Democrats in Wisconsin had acted sooner, done something different, this issue would not have arisen as late as it did, and the Supreme Court wouldn't have had the question before them. It seems like progressive pundits declare any ruling that doesn't fit their goals as partisan, but when they're partisan and they get what they want, they don't call it that. Kind of a classic case of projection. This is a very fact-specific case. It's probably never going to arise again, given the COVID-19, the coronavirus, government response, and all that, and the election. And the majority and the dissent in the case emphasized different facts, as one might imagine. So the majority 
rights. To kind of lay it all out. Wisconsin has decided to proceed with the election scheduled for April 7th. That was a Tuesday. Now, this opinion was released a day before on April 6th. The court goes on. The wisdom of that decision is not the question before the court. The question before the court is a narrow technical question about the absentee ballot process as allowed for in the state of Wisconsin. In this court, Supreme Court, all agree that the deadline for the municipal clerks to receive absentee ballots has been extended. It's already been extended. Nobody's disagreeing with that. From Tuesday, April 7th, which is the statutory election day, to Monday, April 13th, another six days. Court goes on. That extension, which is not challenged in this court, that's going to happen. The deadline to receive ballots has been extended six days. That's happened. Nobody's arguing it. The majority says that extension has afforded Wisconsin voters several extra days in which to mail their absentee ballots. The sole question before the court is whether absentee ballots now must be mailed and postmarked by election day, April 7th, as state law would necessarily require or instead may be mailed and postmarked after Election Day, so long as they are received by Monday, April 13th. So that's what state law would require. Nobody disagrees with that. April 7th is Election Day. That's when your ballot has to be in. And in this case, because of COVID-19, they're going to let people mail their ballots on April 7th. They don't have to be returned. The clerks don't have to have them by April 7th, but they can be mailed by April 7th. And then they'll have six more days in which to arrive, and then they will be counted. So can the courts overrule that state statutory deadline for some reason? And it's got to be a constitutional reason. Otherwise, the federal courts don't have anything to say about a state election. So is there a constitutional right being violated here? Or is a right protected by the Constitution being violated here? Well, and indeed, it is a pretty narrow question. Majority puts a lot of weight on this proposition. They write, importantly, in their preliminary injunction motions, the plaintiffs did not ask that the district court allow ballots mailed and postmarked after election day, April 7th, to be counted. That is a critical point in the case, according to the majority, and I think it is. It may not be dispositive, but it's important. So what the district court did wasn't even asked for by the plaintiffs. The court goes on, nonetheless, five days before the scheduled election, the district court unilaterally ordered that absentee ballots mailed and postmarked after election day, April 7th, still be counted so long as they're received by April 13th. Extending the date by which ballots may be cast by voters, not just received by the municipal clerks, but cast by voters for an additional six days, extending that date after the scheduled election day, fundamentally alters the nature of the election. I think it does. It's a court rewriting a state statutory deadline. Do they have a constitutional reason to do it? The majority says no. Majority says, our point is not that the argument is necessarily forfeited because the DNC didn't ask for it. The point is that the plaintiffs themselves did not see the need to ask for such relief. Seems relevant, if not dispositive. The court goes on, by changing the election rules so close to the election date and by affording relief that the plaintiffs themselves did not ask for in their preliminary injunction motions, the district court contravened this court's precedence and erred by ordering such relief. Now, the dissent points out that the majority opinion actually changes the rules really close to the election date by overturning the district court's opinion. The majority says, well, we, don't, we had to do that because of what the district court did. The majority. The unusual nature of the district court's order allowing ballots to be mailed and postmarked after election day is perhaps best demonstrated by the fact that the district court had to issue a subsequent order enjoining the public release of any election results for six days after election day. It says normally on election day, 
you start getting results, right? Well, the court here realized that, well, if people can still vote after election day, we can't let any results out. So he went back and attempted to fix that. The Supreme Court says in doing so, the district court, in essence, enjoined non-parties, the local clerks counting the ballots, to this lawsuit. Majority finds that a problem. And they, the precedent they've cited primarily that they're relying on is Purcell versus Gonzalez, one of their cases from 2006, as controlling in this case. The sentence says it doesn't really control. The majority says, This court has repeatedly emphasized that lower federal courts should ordinarily not alter the election rules on the eve of an election. And therefore, according to the court, the district court can't do that here. And the Wisconsin state law requirement that ballots be mailed on or before Election Day cannot be altered by a federal district court. The majority then says why they think the dissent is wrong, because that's their decision. Federal district court judge can't do this. The majority says the dissent is quite wrong on several points. First, the dissent entirely disregards the critical point that the plaintiffs themselves did not ask for this additional relief in their preliminary injunction motions. Second, the dissent contends that this court should not intervene at this late date. The court would prefer not to do so, like we mentioned. But when a lower court intervenes and alters the election rule so close to the election date, our precedents indicate that this court, as appropriate, should correct that error. Third, the dissent refers to voters who have not yet received their absentee ballots. But even in an ordinary election, voters who request an absentee ballot at the deadline for requesting ballots will usually receive their ballots on the day before or day of the election. So the majority is pointing out that absentee voting has been going on for weeks and waiting to the last moment, even given COVID-19 that nobody could really foresee happening. If you wait to the last minute and something comes up, you have no room for error. It's like I tell my daughter, don't wait to the last minute to start a school project. If it's due on Friday, don't start it Thursday night. Because what, hap- what if something happens Thursday night? The computer doesn't work. Well, now you're screwed and you should have started it earlier. That's why you don't wait for the last minute. And that's what the court's saying. If you wait to the last minute, something might come up. The court goes on. Fourth, the dissent's rhetoric is entirely misplaced and completely overlooks the fact that the deadline for receiving ballots was already extended to accommodate Wisconsin voters from April 7th to the 13th. The district court on its own, the majority says, ordered yet an additional extension beyond that one that nobody is disputing. This additional extension would allow voters to mail their ballots after Election Day, which is extraordinary relief and would fundamentally alter the nature of the election by allowing voting for six additional days after the election. Now, RBG's dissent puts a lot of emphasis on these unusual circumstances. Absolutely. We got this coronavirus thing. These circumstances surrounding the government mandated economic shutdown. Everybody has to go home, stay at home orders in response to this coronavirus thing. So she feels that these unusual circumstances warrant the federal court's revision of the Wisconsin statutes. She says the district court acting in view of the dramatically evolving COVID-19 pandemic, which exists, sure, entered a preliminary injunction to safeguard the availability of absentee voting in Wisconsin's spring election. This court, U.S. Supreme Court, the majority now intervenes at the 11th hour to prevent voters who have timely requested absentee ballots from casting their votes. I would not disturb the district court's disposition, which the Seventh Circuit allowed to stand. So, She would not disturb it, and the other three justices in the dissent for a total of four agree with her. And the majority, in effect, to this, um, the dissent saying they waited to the 11th hour, the majority is, in effect, saying that we're only intervening at the 11th hour to undo the district court's intervention at the 10-hour, 45-minute mark. So don't blame us for that. 
as a practical matter, RBG in the dissent points out the important things that are on the Wisconsin ballot, and these are very important things. She says, at issue are the presidential primaries, a seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, so they vote for their state judges, three seats on the Wisconsin Court of Appeals, yep, over 100 other judgeships, I guess at the trial level, over 500 school board seats, and several thousand other positions. So there's a lot on this ballot, absolutely. And as a quick aside, North Carolina voted on their state judges. Colorado does not. Wisconsin apparently does as well. And that has its drawbacks. I get it. I mean, that's why the federal judges aren't elected. They're appointed for life. They're not supposed to be affected by the changing political whims of the people. And so voting on them does have its drawbacks. But at the state level, I think I prefer it to politically connected appointees, which is how it works if there's not an election for them. In any event, as a policy matter in this DNC versus RNC or vice versa case, it's a policy matter, not a judicial one. Colorado, for example, mails ballots to everyone every election. That's a policy that solves this problem. You just get one and plenty of time to send it back. Wisconsin has a different policy. This policy is set by the legislature and executed by the executive branch. And when some people ask the courts to fix that policy, Due to this unusual situation with the virus, courts aren't supposed to fix bad policy. Now, perhaps in hindsight, the Wisconsin legislature can fix this problem. They did not and perhaps could not have foreseen. But it's their job to do it. I submit it's their job to do it, not the judiciary's. RBG goes on, clearly disagreeing with me and the majority on this one. She says, yet tens of thousands of voters who timely requested ballots are unlikely to receive them by April 7th, the court's postmark deadline. Well, okay, first of all, I mean, and I'm sympathetic to that. Very, I really am. But we, the separation of powers is a real thing. It's not the judiciary's job to fix it. And also, this isn't really the court's deadline. She says it's the court's postmark deadline. It's the statutorily created election day in Wisconsin. It's the Wisconsin's deadline. Now, as it turns out, some bad policy was made by politicians, perhaps. I mean, that can be argued. That's what the legislature is forced to argue about that policy. And those who waited to the last minute, when you wait to the last minute, something might come up. Part of the reason you shouldn't wait is because something unexpected might happen. That unexpected event does not change the problem into a constitutional issue. I get it. It's a bad situation. And the dissent says, Now under this court's order, tens of thousands of absentee voters, unlikely to receive their ballots in time to cast them, will be left quite literally without a vote. And that's not what we want. It's not good. But they're left without it because they didn't act earlier. Something came up. And that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate if your computer crashes and you can't finish your homework assignment. And yeah, your teacher might cut you some slack, but the teacher is, in, a, in essence, a king of the, of the classroom, and we don't have kings. We have separation of powers. And the entire state of Wisconsin was facing the exact same set of circumstances. No particular group was singled out. And bad policymaking and execution of that policy, because they were having a hard time sending out all of the requests for absentee ballots, because there was a lot more than they expected because of the government's response, the government's policy decision in response to coronavirus. So even under highly unusual circumstances, execution of a policy doesn't automatically make something a constitutional issue. Poor execution of a policy doesn't automatically make something a constitutional issue. And if we're going to follow the separation of powers doctrine and we're not going to imagine constitutional issues where they don't exist, if that gives me a fetishistic commitment to the rule, so be it. I'm guilty. But that's a far better outcome than judges attempting to fix policy based on their personal preferences as to whatever desired outcome they might have. If they want to do that, there's a place for them, and it's the legislature. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 78, RNC versus DNC, the case about 
changing the election laws, the deadlines in Wisconsin due to the government response, the government policies regarding COVID-19 and how they laid out their elections. We're brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think. Again, Twitter at TheLawDKW and on Facebook.com slash TheLawWithDKWilliams. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, teaching, any of your cool projects. And once again, we have to thank John Jersman tremendously for sponsoring this episode of The Law. We cannot tell you how much we appreciate that. And if you'd like to contribute to our work here, like John, please contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details. Freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously.